Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Wren. Let's get started. As you guys join in on the live show, um, we've been doing kind of like one-on-one guests sort of format. So today we we're planning planning to talk about some of these end-of-year sort of planning, strategic tax type strategy moves to think about. So what I thought would be a great thing to do today was to kind of bring in our whole team. So right now we got like kind of like the power team. Um, you know, collectively we have like a serious amount of like you know, financial geek power right now, I think, <laughs> between the four of us. There's a lot of nerdiness present here. Yeah, we could. So we're going to try to stay out of getting too geeky with this stuff and hit the high points. Okay. But anyway, we're uh, excited to kind of talk through some of these end of year tax moves and hopefully you can get some nuggets or two that you can use in your situation. The plan today was to talk through some of these tax strategies that you can kind of think about using um, around this time, even if it's not the end of the year and you're listening to this on the uh, recorded version. These are the types of things you can really do anytime, but if you haven't done them and it is the end of the year, it's definitely something to really think about. We'll also talk about some of the uh, just housekeeping stuff to think about, and then really wanted to wrap up with some of this prepping for the new year. So things to think about, you know, as we start to plan for what we want to accomplish next year. And that's always a hot topic. You know, as we're recording this, it's December. We're right in the stretch of the holiday season and we're getting down to the last 10 days of the year. So everybody's thinking about like, what are we going to accomplish next year? So let's jump into some of these tax topics. There's a bunch of these that we can kind of talk through, but I wanted to talk about some of the minimization strategies first. So um, maybe we could start with Jeff. So let's talk about the backdoor Roth IRA, IRA, HSA, all that stuff. Um, I know there's not, it's not exactly a deadline to have this done by the end of the year, but I, I feel like it's something, you know, people should be, think about doing before the end of the year. Yeah. So we've got the the backdoor IRA and the, the health savings account are two to be looking at as we get to the end of the year here. One reason, I guess, if again, real basic, if you don't know the backdoor Roth IRA is a way for the high income earners to be able to get some money into a Roth IRA. There are income limits for both deducting on the regular IRA and then there's income limits for contributing to a Roth. And so the backdoor is the way that we do this to get around that and still get some tax-free money. The actual deadline to contribute to an IRA for 2022 will be the tax filing deadline, which I believe is the 17th this year coming up maybe the 18th. Normally it's the 15th, but uh, (laughs) that's coming up. But if you want to make it just a little easier on yourself, as far as the tax filing goes or your tax preparer, if you make that contribution by the end of the year, there's one less line or a couple less lines you actually have to fill out on your tax return to get that right. Be on form 8606. But uh, yeah, you can do up to $6,000 for an individual. That's per individual. So if you have 17 IRAs out there, you can't make 17 different contributions of $6,000. But And then the HSA is another one to look at. Maybe if your last pay stub already, you can look and see if you've been contributing through work, did you hit that maximum? And then if not, you know, you can go ahead and make an individual contribution there to top off the account. But good time to be reviewing how much has gone into those accounts just to see where we're at. Yeah, the HSA and backdoor Roth, those are some of the best tax shelters out there. So for sure, you know, first thing is making sure they're getting funded and ideally they're funded both in the calendar year. But if you 
get down to the stretch, you can fund both of those last minute right before taxes are filed. So then there's the 401k, 403b, 457. And so those have a little bit different timing rules. Those do have, you know, a hard deadline. So Hugh, you want to talk about, you know, funding, making sure we're funding those appropriately, the 401k, 403b, 457, all those work retirement plans. Yeah. So at this point, those are funded through payroll. So at this point in the year, uh, if you're not on base to max out for the year, that one's probably gone, but you can look forward to next year and make sure you get that set up. So 22,500 is the annual max for the 403B and the 401k for 2023. So yeah, now's a good time for those types of accounts to make sure you're on pace to max out for next year. What are some of the things, I mean, I know I've working with families a lot of times, you know, we'll ask the question, are you funding those plans? And the answer is like, yeah, I'm maxing it out. But oftentimes, like when we kind of look at the pay stubs, it's not being maxed out. So what happens? I mean, like what? So maybe if you're listening, like it's probably best to like verify that, right? Yeah. So you're going to want to look at your pay stubs to see what you're on pace for. So 20500 is the annual max for 2022 for those types of accounts. If you're not maxing it out. You know, most people, if you're an attending physician, you're probably going to be in a lower tax bracket in retirement. So going to make sense to uh, defer any uh, as much income as possible during your main working years. So, yeah, that's the main benefit missed out there. But also, if you're going for public service loan forgiveness, another reason to make sure you're maxing those out to lower that income or whenever those payments do come back. Who knows when that will happen, but if you're on an income-driven repayment plan, that's another way to maximize that benefit. Yeah, I think the issue that happens with a lot of these things is we put it on autopilot and we forget to check on it. So it's like, yeah, I'm maxing it out, but like I started it in 2008 or something. <laughs> right, or you know, we'll see, yeah, I'm maxing it out and yeah, you hit 19,500, but that was the max for two years ago, so. Yeah. Um, or like 17,000 or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, so the max changes every year. And so speaking of that, like what, what are the new limits? We got new limits on all this stuff too. So maybe Jen, you want to go through the new limits for the IRA, HSA? I hope that. I have them all right in my yeah. head. I don't Google. have the list pulled up. New 401k, 403b, 457 limits, is 22,500. New IRA, Roth IRA is 6,500. New HSA 7750 for family and then half that for individual. I think all catch-up contributions are staying the same. Is that right, team? It's 6,000 for 401ks, 1,000 mm -hmm. for, yeah. So I think that's all the same. So main thing we encourage people to do is, you know, just make sure you're still on track. If you're a percentage, you know, Divide that 22500 by your expected income. Make sure that percentage is on track to get you maxed out for the year. Make any adjustments as needed. One thing we also caution people to do is, is sometimes things can get funky with 401k plans. If you overfund it and your plan doesn't have certain features on it, you can miss out on contributions. So usually we recommend spreading that out over the year as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And then just reach out to us if you have questions. If you're not sure how to do it, just shoot us an email and, and we can help you figure it out. If you're working with us. If you're not, you can feel free to reach out. Yeah, feel free to reach too, out. But we won't know your situation. <laughs> so we're going to be like, I don't know. <laughs> You know, it's hard to, yeah. it's hard to, all this stuff depends on your situation. And Jen was referring, I think you were referring to like the true up thing with the 401ks. Yeah, and yeah. So I think the TSP doesn't have a true up, right? I don't think the government TSP has a true up. But... I don't remember off the top of my head, but that sounds right. <laughs> I think they do it by per pay period is their true up. technical yeah. language. So if you are maxing it out, you know, by November, uh, you're going to miss out on that match for December. Yeah. So that's, that's one, while we're talking about this, everybody, if you haven't checked on this, especially if you're not working with us, like we kind of check on these things on our end, but if you don't have this true up, say you're like a super overachiever or saver, and you just kind of want to, you've heard that it's best to save it as fast as possible, get it maxed out early, which kind of in itself is a good thing. But if you're in the TSP, for example, once you max it out, they stop matching. So like in future pay periods, you lose the match if they don't have this true up feature. So a lot of companies don't offer it. In fact, our 401k doesn't have it in like this company. 
in our planning business. Surprise! Um, the, <laughs> by the way, no, the, <laughs> because it's kind of like an extra feature you have to add mm -hmm. onto your plan document. Like we use guideline just FYI, like they're 401k provider and they're very like automated. And so they're not going to be able to add like special features like this. So a lot of 401ks don't have the true up feature. And if that's true with yours, you have to make sure you're maxing out right at the end of the year. Otherwise, you know, if you're maxing out early, you're going to miss out on matching dollars. And the way to verify it is just to look at a paycheck or pay stub and do the math and see, like, kind of calculate, like, what point in the year you're going to max out. Yeah. And common times or scenarios where you might end up maxing early and didn't really try to do that is maybe you're a second year attending and maybe you weren't getting RVU bonuses in that first year. But the second year, it's a lot more than you expected. Well, hey, if you get that in July, you might want to look at what percentage you're contributing and make sure you're on pace to hit it at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you have an option, a lot of times we'll encourage people to do some 401ks let you do a dollar amount, some make you do a percentage. So if your income is variable at all, just to kind of help, you know, protect against that, try to do a set dollar amount if you can. Yeah, that's ideal. A lot of them don't let you, which is unfortunate, but so you got to do more math and tweak it. It gets a little trickier if, if well, there's opportunity, but it also has a lot more gray areas when you're self-employed. So if you're funding, say you have a side hustle, like independent contractor doing like locums work or something, and they're paying you as an independent contractor, or you just have any, you know, side business income where you're actively working. In some cases, you can open up your own 401k. Now the rules in whether or not you can open that are pretty complicated in itself. So if you work with us, talk to us. If you don't work with us, talk to your financial advisor, tax advisor, all the advisors about this, because it's a pretty complicated subject. But assuming you are funding that as well, like a self-employed 401k, the rules for funding it are a little different because you're all, you're the employee and the employer. So you can fund same, you know, same thing with the 401k 403b457 on the employee portion. You can fund that Typically, you need to fund that by the end of the calendar year. And then another side note on that, you can't fund that twice, by the way. Like you can't put in the employee portion two times. So that's a calendar year deadline. And then on the employer side, that deadline is tax time. So that is a separate deadline, separate contribution amount. And so that's for you self-employed folks to think about. And it's good to kind of zip that. I think it's good to zip that up, like the plan for it by the end of the year just because there's two different options to fund it. And then along the lines of self-employed, like maybe we could talk about some of the end of year things to think about for self-employed. For sure, it's, you know, you want to be, because that's a little bit unique tax-wise. But I think the one thing I would emphasize is making sure you're keeping track of like, what are your business expenses and having that organized and having a conversation if you're working, hopefully you're working with an advisor, tax advisor, whatnot, and having a conversation around this time of year about like, am I doing it the right way? Am I organized? Am I maximizing the tax shelters that are available? Like what's going to happen next year with all my tax and business and everything? And then what's this year looking like? Because in some cases, there's some opportunities to like shift things in the next year versus in keep it in this year. Um, but that that's that gets really personalized to your situation. I mean, all this stuff is, is dependent on your circumstances, but that's especially specific to your circumstances. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there as well as for self-employed folks or if you have your own business. Roth conversion. So that's another one. Who wants to tackle Roth conversion? This this is a big topic, but maybe we can hit the high points. Jeff, you look like you're eager to talk about Roth conversion. <laughs> oh man, who doesn't like a good Roth conversion? So uh, yeah, basically a Roth conversion, if we're playing catch up here on what, what it is, is when we have some sort of pre-tax account. So usually that's in an IRA, perhaps you have a 401k or a 403b that is pre-tax and allows you to convert within it. Um, that's a little bit more rare than just being able to do your own IRA and convert that. But when you contribute to the IRA, it's pre-tax, but when you take it out, it will be taxed. And so the Roth, it's going to be tax-free forever, assuming that you're taking qualified distributions, which once you have it in the Roth, aren't, isn't too hard to do. But the idea is when, is this a good time to make that change from an IRA to a Roth? Because 
when you make that change, you are taxed on the amount that you switch or you convert from the IRA to the Roth IRA. And so a few different scenarios where that might make sense right now. Number one is when the market is down is a good time to convert. One reason for that being you convert it and you pay taxes on a smaller amount now that it's gone down. And then later on, we assume it's going to grow again. And hopefully it grows a lot more because the market's down. So we get that into a Roth IRA so that all that growth is now tax-free. And it just so happens that the market's been down this year. Is that right? Any, anybody heard that? Uh, once or twice. Not too bad though. But there are you know, a few other pieces of this that, so the market down being down is one option or one component that makes it attractive, but there are a few other places where this might, you know, maybe that's one piece. But to personalize it, should I do it or should you do it? Maybe would anybody else like to share some of these scenarios that kind of play into that? Yeah, I mean, I we have a fellow, so she's in fellowship this year in a lower state income tax state, planning to move when she graduates next year to California. PSLF is not in the cards. So as far as like increasing her income for this year's tax return, it's not like a huge hit. That's not a consideration. So yeah, uh, we're essentially rolling old 403Bs into Roth IRAs and going to use the brokerage account to pay the tax on that. So yeah, another thing I guess to keep in mind if you're doing Roth conversions, you have to have something outside of those accounts to pay the taxes due for that. So just keep that in mind. So like Hugh was saying, it's a really good idea when you're moving from a state with low income tax to a state with high income tax to go ahead and recognize that before you move. Otherwise, you know, say you live in Tennessee or somewhere with 0% and California is like nine or 10%. There's good savings there. And do you say they were in transition as well from fellowship to practice? We'll be in fellowship this year. Next year we'll graduate income will quadruple 5X. So there you go. Much yeah, different yeah. tax bracket. That's when it's a home yeah. run typically. Yeah. Cause that's like is, two in one. Yep, low market and low Three tax bracket one. now <laughs> with high tax bracket future mm -hmm. and state change that's like the ultimate roth conversion yeah. home run and that's i've had most of my good roth conversion examples were physicians in training we also work with kind of a little bit skewed younger age group and that's that's a common time is like when the income is the taxable income like your tax bracket is lower but there's another segment that it happens in time when like if you retire early the classic scenario is you retire early before kind of these income streams start coming in and you have this gap time where you're not earning any realized income and you can kind of like play with which bucket you take from first. So in that scenario, a lot of times you can kind of time these Roth conversions to where you basically fill up the low tax brackets and it can be like a home run tax move. They're trying to kind of limit the rules on the Roth conversion or were trying to, I guess they maybe still are trying to limit the rules or put some limitations on the Roth conversion, especially for high income. So for now, the strategy is still, you know, alive and well, but it, where you can kind of just convert as much as you want and it's all good. But I wouldn't be surprised if they like chip away at this and it becomes like, but who knows for now it's, it's good to go. We'll see. I feel like they've been threatening our backdoor Roth and our Roth conversion opportunities for a while. Yeah. Same with backdoor Roth. And I think some people argue for doing these now, backdoor Roth and Roth conversion now because it's on the chopping blocks and to get it over with. I've heard less of that argument since it's kind of died down, but if you're worried about those going away, it might be a reason in itself. The only other reason I'll throw out for Roth conversion is if you have an IRA that's pre-tax and you can't do anything about it, like you can't move it in, you don't have a 401k to move it into, and you want to do backdoor Roth, it's going to cause problems doing a backdoor Roth. It causes, it makes, it's just like a complicated tax situation and you end up having to pay tax on it. So a lot of times people just go ahead and convert that IRA to Roth to kind of like clean up, to zero out the IRA bucket so that they can do Roth conversions in the future. So that's plenty of Roth conversion for today. <laughs> <laughs> what about savings plans? So like particularly 529 plans, there's some tax benefits there. So Jen, you want to talk about funding those before the end of the year? 
Sure. So some states have tax benefits for 529, some don't. If you're in an unfortunate state like Kentucky who doesn't give you a tax break for contributing to a 529, this does not apply to you. But if you live in a state that gives you a tax break, I would typically, you know, as cash flow allows, as as goals allow for, put in as much as you can up to that tax break. I think it's, it's it South Carolina that's unlimited. And then most states have like two, four, 8,000 pretty round numbers that you can put in per beneficiary. So, And that's a pretty easy Google if you're not sure. Just Google Minnesota State 529 tax. Yeah, I think you've got a, a really good point there is that these states are very different on yes. what they allow. And so it's definitely specific. A few, Ohio has a little deduction. I'm from Ohio. You can see I got a lamp back here. <laughs> but a few that stick out to me or that I've seen recently, Pennsylvania, gives you a deduction up to the gift tax limit, which is for 2023. Let's do 2022 because that's the year we're in, <laughs> which is 16,000 this year. And if you're married, you could actually do that from each spouse. So if you're really looking to super fund it, you could do quite a bit in Pennsylvania. And there's not a super, um, Pennsylvania is not a low, low tax state either. So you might actually save some money as well. And then Virginia, I believe is another one that is interesting where you can do it per beneficiary and you can set it up so that if you're really looking to get a lot of money and, and save on taxes, that way you can set it up kind of creatively to uh, get a lot of money funded early on. Oh, like a per parent per beneficiary one. So like each child can have one per parent. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I could... I, I can set it up one for Daniel, one for Jen, one for you. None of you guys are my kids, but you're a beneficiary of the 529 plan or something. And then that's a little bit weird, but then <laughs> you're then taking change this too far. The, change the beneficiary down the road to my kid. So you've gotten, anyway, that's really creative. Consult your advisor proper. for that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most uh, of us don't need that much, but if you have several kids or several, you know, a couple of parents or grandparents or something like that, that want to help out, that's a way to look at it in some. So the states are unique is what I'm mm -hmm. trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite one is Indiana because they have a credit. I think they call it a credit tax credit officially, but basically if you give 5,000 to a up to, or if you give 5,000 or more to a 529, in Indiana, you get a thousand dollar tax credit, mm -hmm. which is like the best, I guess that's like the best bang for your dollar or return on your dollar for tax credits. So it's, if you're in Indiana, I would definitely look into that. And the other thing too, that we commonly see just while we're talking about this is it's one of the most commonly missed things on your tax return. Mm. Like even if you have like superstar or CPA or whatever, it's just regularly missed. So I think a best practice is like when you fund it, email the accountant or whatever, just so you can, or if you have a place where you track all your tax stuff, you know, write that down. That's kind of goes in the spreadsheet. If I live in Kentucky, so I don't get a tax deduction, but if I did, I have like this spreadsheet that I keep track of like things to share with accountant. So it would, that would be a thing to go on, on that list. So how about FSAs and HSAs? Let's talk about FSAs and HSAs. Hugh, you want to Talk about the differences of those. Yeah, so the FSA is a, I call it a use it or lose it type account. Some do allow you to roll a small amount to the next year, but in most cases, that's one you're going to want to use up by the end of the year. Differences with the HSA, that's an account that you don't, I guess the most tax efficient way that we have counseled clients to use it is to, if possible, not tap that for health expenses. So continue to max that out, invest those dollars, let them grow, save receipts, especially for any big medical expenses you have. Most platforms will allow you to upload a PDF and kind of store it on their, on their platform. And you can reimburse yourself from that HSA at any point. You could invest the money, reimburse yourself 20 years from now, unless they change the laws. And that way you get a lot more bang for your buck. Yeah, so I always emphasize FSA, I would say is flex spending account, like spend the money before the end of the year. And then health, health HSA is health savings account. So like you can truly build wealth in a HSA. And it's, I would consider it the best tax shelter really, you know, the average person at least has access to. And so it's 
often like much better just to use your own savings to pay for healthcare, like he was saying, and let that HSA, it's kind of like the golden egg of your tax shelters and let that thing build up and wait till you're older to use it, you know, especially if you're young, let that thing build up and invest it. And, but the, sometimes they get confusing. It's like you think you have an HSA, but it's really an FSA. So check to see exactly what you have. It depends on what your company offers and what their, even your health insurance is. So make sure you understand which you have, first of all. And if you have the FSA, it's like, use that thing. Make sure you use every penny of it. But it's the reverse if you have the HSA. Don't use it and throw away the debit card. That's what we're always like. Don't even send me the debit card because they yeah. send, they always send you a debit card and you get an HSA. It's like, no, no, no. This was a challenging thing. Like my wife and I, like we, <laughs> it probably took three years for us to get on the same page with the HSA because they send the debit card every year. And she's like, oh, it's the health spending account. I'm like, no, 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 health savings account. Like, we don't, <laughs> But they send you a debit card, which is confusing because it's like, that means it's, and you take it to the doctor and the doctor's like, oh yeah, yeah, we use that. So anyway, we've talked about HSAs a lot in prior episodes. So if you're interested in check those out, maybe we can link to some of those in the show notes as well. So let's talk about charitable. So charitable giving, there's a lot of tax moves to think about before the end of the year that can save quite a bit or strategies to think about. I think the big thing about charitable giving to talk about first or think about first is, first of all, like you still have to want to give charitably. It's not like there's such a good tax strategy that it makes it better than you. Like you don't make money. I've heard that confusion out there before. It's like, oh, I'm going to give charitably because it makes me better off from a tax standpoint. No, it just, it makes giving better, but you still have to give money, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so I think it's important to kind of hit on that first. It's like, if you have any level of charitable inclination, these are, I think, things to be thinking about, and it can make it even more efficient once you add on these tax strategies we're going to talk about. So if you're thinking about that, definitely keep these tax strategies in your back pocket. The first one I'll throw out is, and I'll, I'll kind of cover this one. I think this is something you see less commonly for younger folks. It's typically a strategy for, you know, as you get later in life. So if you have an IRA that give, that requires you to start taking money out of it, that's called like an RMD. So if you have an IRA that's requiring you to take money out or requiring RMDs, you can opt to take the RMDs and give it to a charity using, it's called the QCD rule. So you can send that money basically directly to the charity. And so that is a valuable tax strategy, especially if you're taken the standard deduction on your taxes because you don't have to take the income on the withdrawal from the IRA because you normally would have to take income when you take the withdrawal from the IRA. But when you do it this way, you don't have to take the income on the withdrawal and it's just kind of like a neutral thing and you're able to give it to. So in other words, you get a tax benefit by by being able to take it out of your IRA and not get taxed on it and still give it to the charity. So it's especially valuable for people that are taking RMDs and that are taking the standard deduction on their taxes, which is pretty common for people that are retired. So that's yeah. that's the least commonly used strategy for at least probably a lot of you all listening. I'm going to let Jeff talk about the more commonly used strategy. So like, oh. let's talk about stock, like giving stock. Why would oh, you want to give stock? Well, first of all, I was not expecting you to bring up RMDs. With, with, I know. I just, I have <laughs> three off. But yeah, you are, you got me all riled up about RMDs and, and qualified charitable distributions. <laughs> you're right. It, if you're giving and you're in that age range at 70 and a half, you can still do that for the charitable distributions. But yet I don't, I can't, I've not seen a scenario where it's not a good idea to do that instead of itemize because it never hits your income that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's fantastic. I mean, if there's something that people don't like less than taxes, it's Medicare premiums. So like, yeah, the less income you can have hit your tax return at all, even if you deduct it later, the better. So I will get off that soapbox. (laughs) Thank you for the reinforcement. So anyway, to the point though, was giving from just investments. Is that what you said, Daniel? Yeah. Like why? I mean, most people give cash, right? Yeah. You're right. The average person, like I would say. Yeah. Giving from your investments is really probably the lowest hanging fruit and one of the best reasons to even start a taxable investment account, if you are charitably minded anyway, is to get ahead and have investments that are flexible and not in a retirement plan. 
But the reason for doing that is that, you know, if you have an investment, so you pay a hundred dollars for, I don't know, give me a good company. Apple. Let's use Apple because people love Apple. <laughs> so it doesn't matter which one, by the way. <laughs> so I put a hundred dollars, buy a hundred dollars worth of Apple stock. Let's say in two years, that has grown to $200. Wow, great return, Apple. And if I were to sell that, then I would not be taxed on the first $100 because that's the amount I paid for it. But then above that, I would have to pay capital gains on it, which would usually be 15 or 20%, depending on, on where we're at. So I would pay on those gains. So $200 in gains, 15% of that, 30 bucks, all right? man, we got to talk in bigger dollars for anybody to care. Yeah. So multiply that times a thousand. But anyway, the point being I'm taxed. So now at the end of the day, if I sell that, I paid a hundred dollars, sold it for $300. I have 270 left. So you don't get the 300. I don't get the 300 because the government gets 30 government taxes. So that's one thing. But if you were to actually donate that when it's at $300 and it, it has to have been there for at least a year, right? We need a long-term gain. So you had to have hold, held that for at least a year. But the charity gets $300. You do not get any, have to pay any taxes on that. And it is all gone. So you've only had to pay $100 to give $300 long-term, basically, and no taxes. And so that is the, the primary reason that that's an efficient way to give it because mm -hmm. you let it grow and you pay no taxes. Another way to look at it is like, would you rather have $1,000 of cash in your checking account or $1,000 worth of Apple stock that you paid whatever, $100 for or something? Like if that's the choice, because you could give that Apple stock away and have no tax impact, you could just buy the Apple stock back with your cash. I'd rather have the cash because the cash doesn't have a share with uncle sam like there's no unpaid tax liability with cash whereas that thousand dollars of apple stock or whatever that any stock that's gone up in value that there's a share of it that's a slice of the pie that's going to have to go to the tax eventually and so it's worth less than it actually is because that unrealized tax bill so when you can give it away if you're already going to give the money anyway that's a home run if you can give something like that, that has that unrealized tax bill without incurring any taxes and keep your cash and then just buy the thing right back. Cause that's what a lot of times happens with our families we work with. It was, we just, we're like, let's give the whatever Apple stock, for example, and then we'll just buy it right back. You know, we'll get the Apple stock with the unrealized tax liability off your plate and then buy it right back. That's kind of the strategy. So it's a great way to give stocks, but what happens when the charity doesn't accept stock? I think I'm kind of We're out of out. solutions. <laughs> we, just, we just give up. Donor advice fund. So Hugh, you want to talk about the donor advice fund? Yeah. So the main benefit of the donor advice fund, to use Jeff's example, you give the stock that has some gain in it to that donor advice fund, and you get to then take that deduction in that year that you make that donation to the fund. And the deduction is based on the market value. So not just the amount you purchase the stock with, but it's the market value. And then from there, you can distribute money to charities as you please. It doesn't have to be that year. It could be the next year. So another, I guess, main benefit of that is if you wanted to batch your charitable giving. So maybe you don't necessarily want to give it all away this year. Now, hey, maybe 2021 was a better year for this uh, when the market was yeah. up. But let's say you wanted to give, you know, $10,000 to St. Jude for the next three years, you can move $30,000 of very highly appreciated funds that you have from your brokerage account into that donor advised fund, and then distribute the money over the next three years. Yeah, it's kind of like your own charitable. You mentioned batch giving. What's that? Basically, I just mean bunching the amount you want to give over the next few years into one year mm -hmm. with your transfer. And that's a, that's a tricky one to explain without a diagram. I feel like how it works. You need some visual. Yeah. We need a visual aid to explain that one. I think in another 10 minutes minimum, what, what would you call it, Jen? How would you describe it? That's exactly what I would call it is batch giving to try and explain it. It's the way the standard deduction works now is it's very high. 
So a lot of people will miss out on the tax benefits of giving, which, you know, ideally the tax benefits is not the only reason we're giving. So it's not a reason not to give, but if we could batch and use example that 30,000 into one year and get above that standard deduction into the itemized deductions, we get to realize some of the tax benefit on that versus the 10,000 a year may not be enough to bump us above that standard deduction limit. So we may not realize any tax benefit from, from the giving if we don't batch it. Yeah, I was looking at a scenario recently with a client for batch giving. I think it was pretty straightforward. Like they had given a lot already this calendar year, 2022. And they got a big bonus at the end of the year. And they're like, what should I do with it? So it was just cash that they had in their account. And so they had already like exceeded this standard deduction. So in, in other words, like every dollar they give is a straight tax savings. Normally that's not the case because of this whole standard deduction. Like if you have no house, no income, and you give a dollar, you don't get any deduction on your taxes. So you have to exceed this threshold we're talking about to start to get a bang for your buck. So this person had already given enough to their, where they're getting a deduction for every dollar they give in this calendar year. So they got a big bonus. They're like, what should we do with it? And I'm like, what I would suggest is go ahead and give for next year and the year after, because you're already receiving those tax benefits. And they, you know, we're really close to the end of the year anyway. And then when we looked at next year and the year after and ran the numbers, it was like going to be a much lower savings spreading it out over those years because they were going to have to kind of exceed that threshold again before they started getting a bank for their buck. But it's very situational. It's just something to have on your radar if you're giving is this batched idea, you know, along with the other strategies we've talked about. I and mean, sometimes you can kind of use multiple strategies. The big thing though is I think with giving, we talk a lot about like tax strategies. I've talked to many people about the tax strategies of giving just because they're thinking about giving, but they haven't even started giving. So I think what I would emphasize is there's a lot of really good benefits of giving, non-financial benefits, like all the happiness. There's a lot of happiness researchers, which is interesting to me that like research different financial things you can do and how it translates to happiness. And to me, the most fascinating thing, and it's not really that big of a surprise, I guess, but it's so interesting is that they have kind of concluded that the best return on happiness is giving money away, which is just, I think for some people surprising. And so that I think is an important thing to remember is if you're thinking about giving, like just kind of give it a shot, take a jump. That's the bigger thing is like taking action on it. And then you can kind of circle back to this, you know, the tax strategy stuff that just kind of amps it up even more. Yeah. Um, all right. So I was gonna say anecdotally speaking, this is not research here, but have you heard anybody complain like, oh man, I'm just so mad that I gave so much. Like, Never. No, I don't think so. No, it's kind of like paying off debt. It's like nobody ever regrets. Like they're like, man, I wish I hadn't given so much money or man, I wish I wouldn't have paid off that debt so fast. Put an asterisk next to student loans though for that one. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that one. Uh, you had to bring up the exception. Yeah. On the, on the flip side though, I mean, in conversations we have with families all the time, maybe you can get a quick raise of hands. How many have, have, you're like, yes, I know it's coming here. How many of you speak to somebody or families that commonly say, I want to give more. I know I should give more. And yeah, maybe it's usually the should. It's like, I know I should, and I'm trying to come up with a plan for it. And I think that's a lot of it is, you know, we can talk about the tax benefits. We can talk about all that, but really we just need to have a plan for it. And then we can strategize from there. After you decide what's important to you and what the level of that looks like, we can you know, kind of facilitate things from there, but it should be more based on, you know, your values than it should be the mm -hmm. tax strategy. Yeah. So how do we, I think the takeaway there is like, don't get hung up in the tax stuff we're talking about. These are all like good strategies, but I've also seen people get hung up in them to the point where they almost like don't give. Cause they're like, how do I figure out analysis all this? paralysis? Yeah. Just like give, even if it's cash, and then get in that routine. And then you can circle back to the strategy. Or if you're already giving and you say, you know, you should give more, then just like do it or, you know, <laughs> dial it up. There's I a mean, pretty like, uh, e easy solution to that problem. Do, 
<laughs> I mean, take a jump. And it, it's like you can dial it down if you have to. Yeah. Same thing with savings. I mean, I, that's what I tell people with savings often. It's like, yes and check. let's just try it out. Like, not the worst thing that could happen is if it ends up that it's too much, you can dial it back down and yeah. not the end of the world and that sort of thing. I guess with giving, you don't get, you can't get the money back. Well, probably not, but <laughs> anyway, we've done this a lot of times. We have like, as financial planners, we've had a lot of experience with people and these sorts of things. And it's extremely rare that, in fact, I don't know of any cases where people like have problems with having, having given or saved too much. All right. So as we start to wrap up, I wanted to kind of talk about like prepping for new year and getting ready for strategy with the new year. And then also like some of the housekeeping stuff to, to be thinking about, like as we plan and then get organized and that kind of thing. So end of year housekeeping, I think is one thing in itself. I think it's a good time of year to kind of look at like withholding and how we're doing on taxes. I've seen it more than a handful of times where like families go to their accountant or do their own taxes April 15th. And then they're like completely shocked and surprised by the tax bill that they get. And it, to put the point, it ruins their finances sometimes. I think a lot of people misunderstand the role of your average CPA. Your average CPA is going to crunch your numbers and do your tax return. They're not going to reach out to you in the middle of the year and say, hey, I noticed that you weren't withholding enough. You know, your average CPA isn't going to do that. So it's kind of on you to either hire someone who's going to provide that service or use someone on your team. If you have an advisor, if you work with us, if you have, you know, someone you can reach out to and just say, hey, can we do like a mid-year checkup and see what's going on? Am I withholding enough? Am I withholding too much? Just kind of keep an eye on it throughout the year. Especially if things have changed. Especially if you have multiple jobs or... Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you're going into practice mm -hmm. or you started a business or somebody got a big pay raise or a big bonus and you would like a classic example, maybe we can talk about some examples of why this is important. Like the classic one I see is like the couple where they both work and one person starts in practice and the other one was already working and they both are employees. So it's not on their radar to like, they're getting taxes withheld and it's like a standard table. So they're like, ah, oh, yeah, it's getting withheld. I did the withholding thing and we're good to go. But what happens sometimes is with high income, especially when you have like a one spouse is like a modest income, like say one spouse makes, you know, a hundred and then the other spouse makes like 300 or 400,000. The problem that happens is like the hundred thousand dollar spouse, like the way the withholding tables work is they don't know that there's another spouse making 400,000. In other words, they don't know you're in the top tax bracket. Like when you combine those two together, you're in the top tax bracket. So you have to be withholding a bunch, but if, but the withholding tables are not going to know that. So they're going to withhold a tiny amount of taxes relative to, to what they should be for the lower yeah. income spouse. Well, I think the W4 doesn't help. I think it's kind of misleading. And I think a, a lot of people understandably so look at the W-4 as if it's like an actual tax return. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's all that form does is tell your employer what we want to be withholding. It's it's not changing your tax filing status. It's not doing anything. It's more of a, you can kind of use the W-4 as a puzzle to tell them what we want to withhold. It doesn't, it's not going to translate to like I have a lot of people, I say, hey, you need to check the married filing separately or single box. And they're like, well, why would I do that? I've always heard it's better to do married filing joint. So I think there's just some misconceptions in how you fill that form out. So mm -hmm. if you do get a new job, you change a job, make sure to ask for help when you're filling out that form because there are just some strategies you can use to make sure we're withholding the right mm -hmm. amount. And it may not be the what you think it is. Yep. All right. So what about, let's, let's talk about getting organized for taxes what should we be like saving or tracking or like what can we throw away versus like what what should be important going in the important pile maybe jen i'd, I'd love it i know you have seen both sides of this so i'd love to hear your thoughts on well i would say when in doubt don't throw it away you know worst case scenario you send it to someone and they say hey we don't need this but we'd rather have that than you throw something away that we actually need i think most documents start coming out at the end of 
end of January, beginning of February. So keep an eye out for W-2s from your employer, 1099s if you did any rollovers or backdoor Roth IRAs. If you have a brokerage account, we run into that a lot. People who are very excited about getting their taxes filed early in the year and they're new to having a brokerage account will file their taxes and then in March be like, oh, what's this extra form? <laughs> um, so make sure to ask if you're not sure. But yeah, I think they can send forms out to you until well into March. So, so mm -hmm. keep an eye out for those things. You know, make sure, like Daniel said, if you can track things throughout the year, especially if you give any transactions you make that you feel like are going to have an impact on taxes, maybe just keep a document that says, here are things that I should remember when I talk to my CPA or I do my own taxes. So, you know, 529 in there, any other giving, any transactions you've made throughout the year. I think those are all good things to just kind of keep organized for tax time. Yeah, and I think that's good for everyone, even if you just have a simple tax situation. Now, yeah. if you have a business or like any form of like self-employed income, like if you're, even if you have a side hustle that's just relatively small, that's when it gets a little bit more, I guess, complicated or there's a lot more opportunities. So we typically suggest having a completely separate checking account and like run everything through it mainly for the reasons we're talking about of organization. And because what happens is, say you are taking extra shifts in locums work or something, and it's 1099 independent contractor, it might be that there's some stuff you can write off, like, you know, continuing education or, you know, whatever, cell phone and home office. And there's, there's a list of things potentially that you can write off. But what happens is, you go to do your taxes in April, hopefully sooner, and you can't remember. It's very difficult to remember all that. It's difficult. It becomes difficult to save the receipts. Whereas if you just had one account where everything ran through, you just look at the account. Like all the transactions are, you even have to keep track of your income too. Like that's the thing. People think the 1099s are the tracking. Actually, you're responsible for keeping track of your income from your business and expenses as well. So it's way easier to just have all of that run through a completely separate account. And if hopefully you don't ever get audited, but if you do, the auditors are very much in favor. Like they want to see a separate account where it's all, I got audited a long time ago. I remember that was one of the first questions they asked. They're like, is this a strictly business account? Like, or, or is this like combined with the personal? Because if, as soon as you combine it with your personal, it becomes like a train wreck of yes. confusion and a mess. So make sure to be, and if you haven't been doing that, like January 1st is like the best time to kind of make that transition. All right. So last thing I wanted to talk about, let's talk about preparing for the new year. I think this is, I think this is the most, and people love to talk about this. Like this is a fun topic, but there's a lot of like, goals that people set that they don't end up following through on. So Jeff, we've talked, we've had, we've been on several episodes talking about like mm -hmm. happiness and what's most important and, and that sort of thing. Like in your opinion, like where do people miss the mark on this whole like new year's resolution thing? I think a lot of it comes down to good intentions, but no action. And, and there are a few different ways that you can hopefully kind of force a little bit of action on some of the, maybe the plans that you have or the, the good intentions that you, that you set out with New Year's resolutions are a thing because we all feel kind of this pull to better ourselves, better our lives and, and live according to the, the values that we have. And so I think two things that come to mind right now would be to actually set things up ahead of time that align with your values. So if you have an intention to spend time with your kids, I've seen this on your calendar, Daniel, like put a, put a day every month and already block it off or an hour on their birth date day of the month that says, Hey, this is already scheduled. It's already been budgeted for, and I'm going to use that time for what I value for what's important to me. And you can do the same thing with finances too, right? You can set up a Let's say there's a giving fund or a travel fund, something like that, that, you know, it gets automated and it just gets set aside in a bucket so that it's ready to be used for that purpose. Our minds love it 
when we have a bucket set aside for a purpose. What if I don't know what my values are? Then you're hopeless, Daniel. <laughs> Come on, Jeff. <laughs> I think it, well, anybody have, have more to chime in on there? I, it's a topic that I love, but. Yeah, I think one good thing for helping people with their values is that kinder exercise that people may have heard of or may have talked about before, where you kind of evaluate your life in the context of what if tomorrow wasn't promised or what if next year wasn't promised? What would you have missed out on? What would you have wished you had done differently or more of or less of? And I think that can kind of help you pair back on the what's actually the most important things, because it's you know, when people are on their deathbed, you know, you always hear, I wish I had spent more time with my family, or I wish I had traveled. I wish I had spent my time doing X, Y, Z, not necessarily, I wish I had worked more. I wish I had taken that second job. I wish I had bought the bigger house. It's usually more about people and time and quality of life than it is the physical things. So I think going through exercises like that can help you reflect on what are those values, what's actually most important to you. Yeah, check out uh, the episode we had with Dr. Jordan Grummet. I guess it was probably four or five shows back, but he's the hospice doctor that worked a lot of people with a lot of people at nearing the end of their life and wrote a book on their regrets. And it was super interesting and like kind of like along the lines of what Jen was saying. You know, a lot of their regrets revolve around them not like leaning into some of these things that are most important to them and like taking action on them. And I think what he, his message is, is that w one of the biggest first steps is to gain awareness of it, you know, have that awareness of what is most important and dedicate the time to getting the awareness. Cause you have to have, like, we're all like super busy. Everybody, it's a like thing that people say, you're like, how's it going on? Everybody's busy. So we don't have much time. And then when you're not busy, you're on your smartphone. So it's like, dedicating you have to carve out an you know an hour or more or an hour a month to like think about what's most important and kind of iron out those values and then ideally you let that drive the goal setting i think that's where goal setting can like really be impactful is when you have it like connected into what's most important and you've kind of made the time you've done the hard work on the front end of like you know sitting there and thinking about it but this is all it's a work in progress too like we don't yeah you're not going to be perfect. We don't want to be hard, too hard on ourselves. It's just about making positive steps in the right direction. Like Jeff was saying, like we all have that drive inside that we want to, you know, make positive progress. So I think we're uh, right at time. This is, this has been a lot of stuff. I think we could cover like 10 sub shows within each of these points. Um, so I have appreciated all of you all coming on to, to chat about all this stuff yeah. this is first live show yeah fun fun times and we'll look forward to catching up again hopefully next time hopefully and i guess we're in the holiday season right now as we're recording this it's december 20th so hope everybody has a happy holidays and happy new year we'll see you on the flip side you've been listening to finance for physicians to make sure that you never miss an episode subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player on this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families, and most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too and want to learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.